Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm so excited to be back today. I've been off for a couple of weeks suffering from what I bet lots of you have had, those dreaded springtime allergies. And so I am all antihistamined up and hope that my voice will hold on for 45 minutes to an hour or so, and we can have a show today. Uh, before we get started with today's topic, let me make a few announcements. The facelift for TeachMeToTalk.com is moving along beautifully. We hope to be up and live with our new, updated, fantastic-looking site by the end of next week. So I hope that you'll pop on there and take a look and let me know what you think. Again, I'm thrilled with this update. We've wanted to do it for a long time. We just needed to find the right person who could see our vision and and do what we want to do with that space and uh, keep the feel of the original TeachMeToTalk.com, but again, have it look more modern and sleeker, and I just cannot wait to see the finished product. So, so, so excited about that. Let me mention, too, if you haven't popped on TeachMeToTalk.com in a while, let me tell you a couple of things that I've written that you may want to take a look at, especially if you work with lots of parents and you need some some kind of reference or you need a resource so that you need to be able to print something and talk with a parent about a topic and then hand them a piece of paper or give them a link if you're emailing them or texting them. Or if you, again, need some way to just share information, let me tell you some new things that I've written on there so that you can be sure that you are aware of those. And, and I want you to be able to use this information in your everyday practices. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, the last time that I did the show, um, show number 228, we talked about an article from a Montreal study that talked about balancing screen time for toddlers. And I've gotten some emails about that and some folks asked me for that reference because they wanted to be able to share that with parents. And if you'll remember, the gist of that was that toddlers who watch or consume more than three hours a day of screen time. Now, remember, screen time isn't just about TV. It could be watching a DVD. If you are in the car and transporting children and mom has that on, she might need to add up that time. It could be that the kids in the car close to an hour a day or longer with that screen on. So that's part of a kid's screen time. Any, any kind of app or educational game, that's part of screen time. Um, just sitting and watching a cartoon with an older sibling, that's screen time. Going to sleep with uh, a little portable DVD player in the crib, I've seen parents do that. That's screen time. So the study said toddlers who use more than three hours a day are likely to experience some negative consequences, particularly in the area of learning, so that when they go to school, they have more difficulty learning new information. Now, as a parent, that's going to scare you to death, especially if you're a parent who's already, who knows that your child is already at risk. And what do I mean by that? Well, a kid who needs speech therapy to talk, a kid who's exhibiting delays in other areas, we know those little guys are already 
at significant risk for continuing to display academic problems. Now, again, if you're a mom listening, I don't want to scare you to death. I don't want. I hope that's not the first time you've thought of that. But if it is, well, it is, <laughs> and that's certainly something that we think about with our little, our, our youngest clients, our little friends who are toddlers and aren't yet meeting those developmental milestones. We know that lots and lots of children with early intervention in particular get better. That's why we put them in therapy. That's why we alter all of the things we do with them at home. That's why we change their input. But we still have to know that that initial delay really does predispose them or at least increases the risk that they may go on to have later problems. And again, that's not a, not a guarantee. I don't want you to think if I'm saying that your child is a light talker that he or she will automatically struggle in school. That's not what I'm saying. But we certainly know that that risk is there. So we want to do every power when they when we know that there's a problem to prevent adding to that problem or exacerbating that problem or whatever verb you want to think of there. We want to do everything that we can to handle these kinds of issues now that we can handle that are within our realm of possibility of changing. And so we alter a kid's environment and we, we change what we do. And one of the things that research tells us is that when children watch too much TV and are exposed to too much screen time, that it has the potential, again, to alter how they receive input. And so this study that we talked about last time I did the show, and again, uh, I want to direct you to this article that I've written about it at teachmetotalk.com, and the title is Research Says Balance Screen Time for Toddlers. For toddlers. And this study said three hours a day or more is where you're more likely to see those negative consequences. So how, how do we use that information as early interventionists, as therapists who work with children who, again, are already showing us that they're more at risk for these kinds of lifetime issues? We share this information with parents, and we, we talk about this study, and we say, you know, and, and this is the whole premise of my article, was saying this may be kind of the real-life solution that we've been looking for because for lots and lots of families, it's unrealistic for us to expect that mom would never use or allow or have uh, any kind of TV. Now, I've talked in the past on the show about how I've got, seen some phenomenal results with families who were able to pull that off, but, you know, we all live in the real world, and sometimes that just is not possible. So I wrote this article to kind of talk about all of those things, to present um, the issue with the study in that they were looking at, as far as I can tell, toddlers who did not demonstrate developmental delays. So maybe this information will be applicable to our little clients. Maybe it won't, but it certainly gives us more of a guideline for parents who say how much is too much or surely you don't mean an educational app surely that's not counted in that three hours a day or or you know if I go if what if it's hour a day or what if it's two hours every three days or what if he only watches the whole time he's at daycare or at grandma's but he never watches it the rest of the week I mean these are the kinds of things that parents think about right these are the kinds of questions that I know you hear because I hear them too. So again, I wrote that article to kind of 
put that out there, another way or another tool that you can use that to start or finish or continue <laughs> those kinds of real-life conversations that we have with parents every single day. And you'll see the links within that article to the original American Academy of Pediatrics um, recommendation for no screen time under two and then limited screen time after the age of two. And then you'll also find the reference or the link for the Canadian study that I mentioned earlier. So I wanted to tell you that that's at teachmetotalk.com so that you can um, take a look at that and use that. I also want to mention that today is the last day. So today is Monday, April 21st for a $10 off coupon good on any teachmetotalk.com product, so that would be DVDs, therapy manuals, and even the courses. So if you're listening today, take advantage of that offer if there's been something that you want to order and have been waiting. Now would be a good time because you can save yourself some money. Okay, let's move on to Tweet of the Week. That's something new that I started just a couple of shows ago. And today's Tweet of the Week, we're going to go back to April 5th. I've been saving this, and this is a a tweet that I retweeted from someone, and it's a quote from Dr. Crary. I believe this is Michael Crary, who's um, an Arctic kind of guy. He's done a lot of things with uh, swallowing stuff, too. But this is, she apparently was attending one of his workshops, and although this won't be quite in context with working with children in birth to three programs, I still think it's highly relevant and applicable. So let me give you the tweet of the week. It was, if it looks like therapy, you're probably not doing it right. What do you think about that? <laughs> Don't you think that applies to what we do? If it looks like therapy, you're probably doing it right. Why would we say that for early intervention? Let me just say, so many times parents think that when we start therapy with a child that we're going to be either magically saving the speech therapy mind and they suddenly, you know, because of supernatural powers, will start to talk and, you know, they're hypnotized into communicating when they weren't able to do that before. And then they don't understand that when you come in and you either start playing with the toys that they already have or use your own toys or if they're coming to see you in a clinic setting, it still looks like what? Rather than therapy to them, it looks more like play, right? It does. It should. And so, so many times, a parent kind of is taken back by that because they haven't known what to expect. You may not have explained that during the assessment. You may not have said, hey, this is how we do therapy with babies and toddlers and young children because they learn everything through play. And so just to the casual observer, just to, again, a mom or a dad who may not have thought that speech therapy would look a lot like everyday life and look a lot like everyday play, they're probably going to be a little bit surprised by that. And I like Dr. Crary's quote here. If it looks like therapy, if it looks like what somebody else may have conjured up in their imagination, if they don't know what we do as pediatric speech-language pathologists and other interventional professionals, they may not recognize it as therapy. So, again, I thought it was great. I love talking to parents about it in that way, too. I've never said it quite that way, but I'm going to steal it and say it from now on because I love it, and it is really representative of 
talking with parents about when we're working on a child's communication goals, whether it be better social interaction or improved receptive language or or signs or words or whatever expressive goal we have, that needs to become a part of our day with the child. That needs to become part of our regular interaction. It doesn't necessarily be where we would say, now it's our therapy time. And certainly we want parents to play one-on-one with their children, and we have to talk to lots of parents about that and talk about blocking out specific periods of time where they do nothing except play and interact with their child. But again, it doesn't have to be so structured that it's recognized as therapy time. It really needs to look like playing on the floor with babies or playing outside on the swing or having a snack or playing with toys in the bathtub or any kind of any kind of daily routine or where mom and or dad and dad or older siblings or nanny the the nanny or the grandmother, whoever is there, whoever is responsible for that child and playing with that child and interacting with that child, we can teach all of them the strategies that we're recommending. They should easily be able to acquire those as we are helping them through sessions and, again, including them and working with them and coaching them. They should be able to do all of those things and include it and it not really look like therapy, again, to a casual observer. So I love that. I thought that was a great tweet of the week. All right, one other thing that I want to start doing is reading little bits and pieces of emails. I am so, 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 so privileged every week to get lots and lots of email from um, parents or uh, other speech-language pathologists, and again, not only in our country but around the world, and that still blows me away even six years later that my little website here is able to reach that many people. So there's a speech pathologist from, I believe she's from Wisconsin, and she sent me a great email last week to ask me a question about a product that she had purchased. But she added this little line. She said, I'm very much enjoying adding your tips and therapy ideas into my sessions. I have seen a remarkable difference in several of the children on my caseload. And then she added, very exciting isn't that exciting? Isn't that why we do this job? It's certainly why I do my job, and it's certainly why I do the podcast and write on Teach Me to Talk, and certainly why we've done our DVDs and our books. It's not because <laughs> I have a lot to say, which is certainly true, but it's so we can use that information to really, really, really make a difference in how we do our jobs and how we do therapy and how we teach parents to interact with their children so that they can see improvements in their own child's ability to communicate. So I love when I get that feedback, and I'm going to start reading some of those um, so that I can share those with you too. All right, so that was our email comment of the week. We are now ready to move on and talk about today's topic. We are continuing our series called Be the Toy. Now, I started this back with show number 227. Today is show number 229. And again, I've been off for a couple of weeks with that, not off work completely, but haven't done the podcast because of my voice and didn't want to subject you to hearing that. But if you've not listened to those two previous shows, it may be a good idea to go back and do that before listening to today. I hate to be terribly repetitive on a show so that you feel like you're listening to the same darn thing. But this show really is a continuation of of what we started. And this all started with a speech pathologist who sent me an email. He said she has this little boy who becomes hyper-focused on the toys that she brings. And so 
she was asking me to help her problem solve with, and she had a lot of questions about why is this? What you know, he's different than any other kid that I've ever seen in my career. I don't understand why he's reacting this way. He he's really obsessed with the toys, and then when I try to put the toys away because that's been problematic, then he kind of turns that toward me, and he's just all over me, and, and I don't know what to do, and, and why again, why would he be doing this? How do I explain this to his parents? So we've been talking about children like this and who have these pretty um, excessive reactions compared to just you know, the regular uh, kind of kid that you might see as an early interventionist. And even as I say the regular kind of kid that you might see, there is no regular kind of kid, right? <laughs> They're all different. They all, And that's what makes this job so great is because we can never use the cookbook or a cookie-cutter approach. We have to have different tools and different approaches and different strategies that we can apply. And so she had never seen a kid like this before. She said, even though I've worked with early intervention for a while, this kind of kid is new to me. Have you seen this before? Can you help me? So we spent that whole first show kind of dissecting her email and talking about the reasons that children in this situation appear overstimulated, if you will. I don't know that I've used that word over the past couple of shows, but it certainly is representative of what's happening with that little guy. We've talked about being a sensory seeker. He just needs more, 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 more. We spent last show talking about the new information that researchers are now publishing about our sensory strategies that we're using. We talked about how some of that may be falling out of favor because they can't necessarily prove in a study that those kinds of strategies worked. We also talked about, though, just the common sense real-life application of sensory strategies that even our grandmothers used before they even knew that that was, you know, a term. Certainly sensory strategies are, you know, my grandmother and mother never said that phrase together. They had no earthly idea what that was at that time. So but we talked about the value of using things like movement, things like opportunities to get out and just run and just play and how valuable that is for children. And we know just from a common-sense real-life perspective that when we give kids these opportunities to kind of run around and do their own thing and they're active and, and you know, again, that's why recess was born at school so that young children have that opportunity. And then the, the long-time theory that we've held is once they've done that, then they're able to kind of clear their little brains, come back inside, sit down, listen, and learn, right? And so that's the basis for <laughs> how I still continue to think about sensory strategies and how I still explain it to parents and when I have a mom or dad or a grandmother who's looking at me like I have no idea what you're talking about here that that's how I explain it and that's how I say we're going to implement this that we're going to give children a chance to move a chance to do what they naturally are inclined to do which is run around and then kind of bring it down calm it down get to a point where they can listen and learn. All right, so we're continuing with this topic today, and I do have an email that I want to read, and this is from Jill, who's a speech pathologist, and she, I mentioned her on the last show, and she has a little guy like this on her caseload too. So again, if you've never seen this kind of kid on your caseload, just wait, because you will. They're out there. They're certainly not 
um, again, it, it may take you a while before you see a kid like this, or I don't know, you may have a case like where you have lots of little guys like this, or this may be routine for you. You know, I don't know, but certainly this is uh, the kind of kid, if you haven't seen it before, you will. And so you need to listen so that you are ready. Or maybe you're thinking back about a kid that you say, gosh, I had this kid two years ago, and that's what was going on with him, and I didn't know. I never felt like I really got a handle on on how to help him. So you'll have these ideas, you'll have these strategies, you'll have this kind of increased knowledge base so that you can think about a kid like this in a different way when you get him next time. Or maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a mom and you're listening and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this sounds like my child. And you may not even realize that this is kind of out of the norm. You may think, well, aren't all kids this way? Or you may think, well, I thought, you know, this was just his inborn personality. I didn't realize that my kid is kind of hard to work with. And I'll tell you this, I tell moms that. When I have a child who, again, we never like to say, you know, a normal speech kid or a normal, you know, kid in EI or whatever because there's no such thing. But sometimes we'll have these children that, again, kind of go beyond what taught us is the kind of kid that we normally see. And so I just tell mom, I'll say, I understand why this has been hard for other therapists, especially if mom is, you know, now I'm in private practice and and I get the opportunity to see children from all over the country and moms will bring their child in and they may say, we've had such a bad experience with therapy. Or they may say, I have loved our last three speech pathologists, but, you know, we're just kind of struggling here with ideas. We need new ideas. And a lot of times I need to, I, I just start off by saying, well, let me just say, he's kind of a hard kid. And I go on to explain that and to, to again, not put it out there so that mom feels attacked or, or like I'm singling her kid out or anything like that. I just say it so that she knows, man, we're going to have to dig deep here <laughs> because this is beyond um, what we might expect to see. And, again, I want to be so careful that I, I to be sure that I'm communicating to you that I never like moms to feel um, threatened or, like, again, that I've singled their children out negatively or anything like that. Sometimes when I say this kind of thing, moms will actually be a little bit relieved because they'll say, gosh, he feels hard to me too. Or, well, I wondered why this seems so much more difficult than, than anything I've read. Or, none of my friends' kids are this way. I've just been baffled. You know, and again, it, it may be more of a relief to, some, to say that out loud to some moms so that they kind of know they're not in this alone. It will be a little bit scary for them to hear because, you know, you never want to think, gosh, my child is one in a bazillion and nobody knows what to do. You don't want to make moms feel that way, but at the same time, coming alongside them and saying, hey, I get why, you know, this has been hard for you because guess what? It's going to be hard for me, and I've, I've seen kids, you know, for 20 years now or however long you've practiced, and this is a little bit more complex than even a kid who would come in, you know, with, uh, you know, with a speech language delay, even compared to the kids on, on my caseload, not just you know, withstanding the whole range of kids that we see um, if we're thinking about typical development or even kids, you know, just kind of all over every single kid. So, again, sometimes being able to say to a mom, I get where you're coming from here because this, you know, I, I'm going to have to really think about this to come up with what's going to work and why he's doing this. 
So I wanted to put that out there too. Um, but this is the email that Jill sent, and she said, she's talking. She's giving me a lot of details here, but let me just kind of read some of this to you and pull this out. And she makes such a good observation in here, and I'm, I'm not sure that we've talked about it in this kind of way over the last two shows where we're talking about be the toy and how we have to turn ourselves into the object of this child's attention and interest so that a child learns how to participate and engage with us first before we can ever move on to teaching him to understand words and way before we can help him learn how to say words or talk. You know, this is the point where we start. It's that, that social engagement piece, that interaction piece. And, again, if you've never heard me say that, if you're brand new to this show, Long, 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 long before we think a kid can say words, he has to know what they mean. And then long, 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 long before a kid knows what a word means, he has to want to be with another person so he can learn from you. Until a kid wants to interact with you, and again, some parents think about this as listening to you, but until he ever kind of gets that back and forth one-on-one piece where he's able to stay with you and like you and enjoy you and and, again, want to be with you, you've got to conquer that piece first. You've got to work on that piece first, again, long before you expect him to understand words and long, long, long before he's going to say words. You've got to get this social foundation established. So for lots of these kids, we can't use toys to start. We have to really start with that one-on-one interaction. In the last show, in show number 228, I talked about my 10 go-to social games, meaning the little games that I use to help a kid learn to be with me, to learn the game, to kind of remember the routine, eventually to do his part so that he remembers what comes next. And again, that's that learning piece, that's that cognitive piece that we have to have kids demonstrate to us that that they're moving along, again, before we expect language to emerge. So we talked about that in last show and about I gave you some good ideas for how to start those little games, specifically how I played those little games, gave you that list. I also mentioned if you need to know more games like that, if you need a way to break down those little games into steps so that you can teach a kid to do his part, if this is new information for you and you really don't know what I'm talking about here, my book, Teach Me to Play With You, is a great resource because it'll take that information. It'll teach you how to make games like Peekaboo and Ring Around the Rosie and Row Row Your Boat, how to make all those games therapeutic so that you're really teaching a child, again, to learn to be with you and to like it and to enjoy being with other people and the receptive language piece and the cognitive piece where he's really learning, he's really remembering, he really expects what comes next, and then we move on to that expressive piece, whether it be with a word or a sign or whatever we're using. So the whole premise of of these three shows now is to talk about how establishing us, another person, as the object of a child's attention is really where we have to begin for kids to tend to hyper-focus on a toy and leave us out. Or for kids that, like in in Amy's first email, who were so um, clamoring for our attention or just, again, that sensory-seeking piece where they're just, they're kind of on that search, 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 search piece all the time where they, they, they just seem, a mom, a mom one time I remember described her child, she said, he's just so needy. 
it just needs to be on me or have have me holding him or or doing something with him all day long. He can't, you know, it's it's like he just craves me more and more and more. He's just needy. So for these kinds of kids, this, again, is where we begin. We become the toy. We make ourselves that focus so that they learn from us and they learn the value in that back-and-forth interaction so they're not leaving other people out, so they're not isolating themselves. Okay, so Jill has described this little boy, and she said he's a lot like this. He's a little guy who's 28, 29 months old now. She's seen him for a while. She also has a history with his family. She saw his siblings, and she also says that um, she's giving me some information about him, and she's saying she's having some trouble him out. He gives great eye contact and good joint attention, both with and without toys, but sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> so she's worked on this with him. She's kind of gotten to the point where he's looking at her. He wants to be with her. They're able to use some toys, but some days are still kind of bad. And she goes on to describe that. And she said he does initiate interactions fairly frequently, and he typically wants to be with people. They've worked on playing with toys because he didn't always know how to play with something, and he would get frustrated, and we see that a lot. And sometimes parents will will take that frustration that they're seeing with not knowing how to do the toy, they'll find it to something else. They're saying he's just stubborn or he's, he's too hot-headed or won't. He's so busy, so active that he doesn't really listen to me or watch me when I show him how to do it. And then they kind of, again, reassign all of that to a personality or a temperament kind of thing rather than he doesn't have basic skills. So Jill is saying, now he can operate cause and effect toys as well. He didn't do that before. He's playing with some toys now. But, again, he, he's the kind of guy who doesn't necessarily want Mom or, dad, mom or dad or the SLP to show him how to play with a toy. He gets pretty mad at that. But she's been able to kind of work through some of that. She talks about he does struggle with the toy bag. Sometimes she'll put it over the baby gate, and then he just gets really, really mad because she's removed that from him and he can't seem to move on. And so she said if she doesn't bring the toy bag, sometimes he gets mad about that because he expects her to have it. And so she's kind of, you know, darned if I do, darned if I don't. And so she's talking about some of the things that that have worked so far for her. And she said, so I ended up getting started right away instead of talking to mom first. And that's a strategy that I would recommend too. So many of our little guys, you know, we love to go in with early intervention with home visits where we really start the visit by saying to mom, how did it go last week? Tell me what happened. And you kind of pick up where you left off last week as far as strategies go. So if you were talking with mom, if if understanding language is your primary goal, you're going to say, what kinds of commands did he seem to understand this week? What are the new things that he's done for you that he wasn't able to do before? You know, if you talked about specific activities, say with bath time or snack time, you're saying, hey, how'd that go? Did he did he seem to understand it when you were saying, give me the duck or or let's wash your baby or or you know, put your boat right. You know, give me your boat. Does he under, is he understanding more of those little things that we talked about that were your homework over over this last week? How's he doing with those things? So that's how we normally. That's an ideal way to start a session, where we talk with mom about what worked, what didn't work, and then we help mom strategize and problem solve, and we we move on to kind of the next thing. And so we're talking about how to expand that same strategy, or if mom says, "Hey, that didn't work at all." You kind of back up to square one and you work, you know, you, you 
together come up with what you're going to do next. Sometimes, though, that doesn't work because we'll go in and our little clients are so excited to see us that if we blow the first 10 or 15 minutes talking with mom, we we may just have lost them for the whole time. And again, if you're in that, that coaching model method of treating children, you may say, well, I don't care about that because I'm there to help mom and it doesn't matter to me if he plays with me or not. I'm just going to talk to mom about how to do it. Well, my response to all of that is if you don't see him do the things that you're recommending with mom, then how are you ever going to know what works or what doesn't work? So I'm still of the belief that even if we're doing, you know, parent education is our primary role with a family, if we're doing coaching, if we're, if we're there to, again, really, really, you know, take this, this therapy that we're doing, you know, with a natural environment approach where everything that we do needs to fit into the context of a child's daily life rather than having it be special therapy time, I still think that the reason we're there as a therapist is because it's not working with what mom or dad have already tried. So we can't just leave what they're doing as it is, and we can't just talk to them and then go back next week and talk to them and then go back next week and talk to them if we never try anything new. And again, especially when a mom is saying to you, hey, what you told me really didn't work. We've got to listen to that. And, and, and for me, <laughs> Laura Mai, speech pathologist, I have to know the kid so that I can think about him as an individual, not just in real general terms, but so I know what his quirks are. I know what he responds to. I know what he likes. I know what he doesn't like. I know what will work for him and what won't work for him. That's not what I've seen, not just on what mom and dad say. And so I have to interact with him. I have to still do the therapy piece. I'm I'm a therapist, first and foremost. I that's my training, that's my background, to know what to try next and what strategies to implement. And and if this doesn't work, try this. And if this doesn't work, try this. And if that doesn't work, do this. I don't know that unless I've done one on one with kids. And again by one on one I don't mean that I've sent mom out of the room and it's just us two there. I mean that I'm implementing those things. But I'm not just saying to mom you know, go check your email, I'm going to see what works, and I'll tell you what to do. She's sitting there with us. She's watching. She's observing. She's participating so that, again, she knows what worked and what didn't work so that she can take that same strategy, that same technique, and do it herself. So what happens sometimes with our little guys, like Jill has described, is we get there and we talk to mom, and we're finding out, what worked, what didn't work, but then after that 15 minutes or so, we've kind of lost the best opportunity with the kid. So for some of these guys, we have to just get started right away with our therapy that day so that we don't lose them and we don't overly frustrate them. And haven't you had kids like that that get so excited when they see you and then you kind of, you know, you wash your hands and you go to the restroom and you talk to mom and you say hi to the other kids and, you know, your shoes are off and down and you're ready to play and they're kind of like well that took way too long i'm done with you <laughs> that 15 minutes of or 10 minutes or however long it took you of wonderful attention it's gone <laughs> you can't get it back i was excited i could have played i would have been with you but you blew it and for some kids we have to know that about them we have to know that you better get in there and get going right from the beginning and there will be time 
this time to talk to mom about those things that we do need to ask about, that we do need to know so that we can restructure our recommendations and our therapy approaches. I'm certainly not saying we don't talk, but I'm just saying that for some of these kids, we got to get in and get going. And then when we start to lose a little bit, when that, that preferred <laughs> attention is waning, that may be when you start to talk to mom about what's happened. That may be when you're answering mom's questions. That is when you're finding out more information. And that's when, again, you're kind of tweaking what you're doing with mom. And it's not for every kid. A lot of kids need that warm-up time. They need that time when you first get there, and they kind of become accustomed to, well, first she's going to talk to my mom. And then after a few minutes, she's going to play with me. And, or mom and I, you know, are going to play with her, or whatever your routine kind of happens to be. So I want you to know that when you see this with a kid, when you feel, when you start feeling like, darn it, I've lost him, I can't get him back. Or last week when I walked in and mom was a little bit busy and I just started playing with him and we went into our, into our therapy activities or I joined him in what he was doing, that went a lot better than when I went to mom and talked to her for 20 minutes before we kind of started with what we were going to say. For some kids, you kind of have to do it backwards. And so Jill knows that, thank goodness. And she said, we, you know, get started now. And she said, I try to give him two things to give him a choice what he wants to do. But she said sometimes that frustrates him and he still wants to dig in the bag to kind of see his choices and then pull everything out and get started. And I'll just say, man, I hate it when that happens. I hate it when a kid kind of gets in that pattern. And you almost have to avoid it at the beginning so that you don't let a kid know that that's even an option. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen because he's already kind of gotten locked into that pattern. But you'll know next time. And, again, I'm saying this because, boy, have I learned this lesson the hard way where – you don't really give kid, a kid a full access to the toy bag. And let me just say, that's one of the reasons that some experts are saying now that you wouldn't take a toy bag. I mean, that's one of the things because they've, they've seen this problem that one and two and three-year-olds kind of want to have complete control of that. And so one of the solutions might be, well, just don't take it in, just eliminate it altogether. And I understand why somebody might say that. And for some kids, I get it. You know, the kind, especially the kinds of kids that we've been talking about, the, the, you know, for three shows now, the kids who hyper focus on the toys, and then you're kind of left out of it. But just for future reference, for all of us to know that we never really want to even let a kid know that that's an option. If we're taking toys in, you know, we're going to play with. We can let them choose. I love giving kids power with choices. But we're going to pick one of those things, and we're going to play with that and, and really do everything you can to restrict access to that bag so that they don't ever get into the habit of pulling everything out. Now, that's easier said than done, but you can get to a point where you'll, the kids that you have like that will just be a fraction of the kids on your caseload, not every single kid. So that if you're saying 18 kids in a week or you know 22 or 10 or how many ever you see, that most of them know and learn and deal with this is how it goes. She presents a couple of things. We pick what we want to do. We do it. We play. We have a great time, blah, 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 blah. We clean up. Then we do it again. We pick. She's giving another couple of choices. We pick one of those. We play. We clean up. Then it starts again. Most of the kids on your caseload will get to the point where you can have them participate in a routine like that. And then this will be the exception 
rather than the norm. But I have known therapists who just struggle with that with every kid that they see, and it's because they're not establishing from the beginning that this is how we do it. So if that's you, don't beat yourself up. (laughs) Just know that moving forward, or, or let's say you are mentoring a therapist who's struggling with this, or you, a friend of yours calls you and says, what happens to me or you hear somebody say this in a meeting and they're and and they're using it as a justification for not you know well we should just nobody should take toys or whatever this happens to be this is an opportunity for you to provide some education and say well I still think that we can do it this way but here's what's happened in the past and here's how you can fix it so that again you are providing that you're the resource you're the one saying Here's a better way to do it. Here's what might happen. Here's what worked for me. Or if that's you, over time, you're telling yourself, man, I've got this new kid. I'm starting fresh with this family. Here's where I'm going to implement this kind of new way to do things. And so you start fresh with the the children that you have. For some of our little guys, we get them into such a routine that it is so hard kind of mid-shift or mid, you know, in the middle If you've seen them for four or five months and you've just let them dig through your bag the whole time and you've had no control and you haven't done choices and you just kind of let whatever happened happen, it may be too hard to correct it with those kids. It may be too hard to correct it with those parents. (laughs) You may just have to start over with every new kid that you see. You think, I'm going to do this a different way. And you kind of start your newer approach from there. It just is going to be whatever your personality is and temperament is and and how sick you get of kids digging your toy back <laughs> so that you don't feel like you have control. You know, again, it may be that, that you can't prevent it with a child that it's already happened with. You're just going to have to, in the future, do, a, do uh, some things differently so that you're at less risk for that to happen. All right. So then Jill goes on to say that sometimes the little guy gets so upset when they've started with the toys that he can't back up and do a social routine or a game because, again, he's so hyped on the toys. So that's why for lots of our little friends, we almost have to start out every every one of our sessions with that social game and that, that, that activity that we know that our main purpose here is to get them to engage so that that becomes the routine and so that that becomes what they expect and what they know that you're going to do. So that's the recommendation that I would make. And again, I think Jill already knows this. She's already identified this as you know being problematic. So moving forward with kids that you anticipate that this might be how it goes, that that might be a change that you want to make. Here's what I wanted to say and talk about with this little guy in particular. She says that this little guy really. Um, let me see how she describes it. She says, throughout all of this, so she told us all this about the bag and that he'll, he'll get hyper-focused on the bag and then he has a hard time moving on to a song. And then if she puts the bag outside, he stands at the door and cries and cries. If she doesn't bring in it at all, he cries. And she says, although last week he moved on pretty quickly and we were able to do other things, which tells me there's a light at the end of the tunnel. She just has to keep going. But she says, this is what is key. Throughout all of this, he's pretty aggressive and rough or has pretty strong reactions, good or bad. If he laughs, it is a huge, loud laugh. And eventually, he might bite or hit, even if he's smiling and laughing. If he wants to be left alone and doesn't want to do anything, he screams no, and he might kick or bite or hit. 
She says, at first, I thought he was definitely a sensory seeker, and I love this observation. She says, but now, beginning to wonder if he does all this stuff because he's really a sensory avoider, and he gets overstimulated and then responds by being aggressive. I think she's hit the nail on the head. What about you? I think he, and we all, haven't you seen a kid like this who, it's like they're a little pendulum. Do you know what I mean by that? If they are mad, they are fighting mad. I mean, they are just totally almost out of control. They're hitting, they're biting, they're screaming. Everything they do is that, you know, on a 1 to 10 scale, it's a 10 plus. You know, they are just done. On the other hand, if they are happy, you might see the same thing <laughs> because they have these wild reactions and these wild swings. There's no kind of in-the-middle norm there. And so I think she's exactly right. Whatever happens with him, you know, he, again, is, is I would think about him maybe not in terms of seeker or avoider, but just an over-responder. Whatever he, whatever he happens to feel, again, it, it's, he's not going to be that middle of the spectrum where, again, you kind of know what's happening. He's a little bit mad, but you can control it and, and, and redirect it and move along pretty easily. You know, he's got these, these huge, huge reactions. And I think overstimulated is a great word to describe kids like this too because even when they're happy, they're still displaying these really aggressive kinds of behaviors. They're... Everything is great. They're having a blast. It's so much fun. And then before you know it, they're yanking your hair. Or they get so excited that they really bite you or pinch you or or anything like that. They just, you know, almost can't take being that excited and that because they're really, really revved up. And it doesn't matter whether they're happy or sad or mad. You're still going to see that kind of over-the-top response. So she says, I think that I'm going to look at it this way. And, and she also goes on to identify that she thinks that it's this way because she thinks that his home is fairly overstimulating. She describes the older siblings. They were, oh, gosh, they're twins. So there are always three kids in the house. The house has a lot of stuff. You know, these are all over. A fair amount of loud TV on during the day. So Jill goes on to say that he's, you know, visually and auditorily, there's a lot going on. If everybody is there, she said it's chaotic. Um, and um, she goes on to say that mom is a stay-at-home mom and doesn't have a ton of adult contact. So, of course, she loves her speech pathologist. And, again, she's got this long-term relationship with her because, because she also saw the older twins, the older children, so I'm sure she, this mom thinks about Jill as her friend now, and as she should. You know, we have term relationships with families, especially when we see child after child that they have, and we know these kinds of issues sometimes tend to kind of run in families, so we get an opportunity <laughs> to really know a family over time. So the mom, you know, has a lot to say to her and, and wants to talk to her and wants to interact with her. And, again, these are all positives. We want that with mom, but she says sometimes she thinks that, Mom can kind of take over a little bit, or mom is trying to tell her things when really the speech pathologist needs to be focused on the child, and so she's trying to do things with the child to figure out what they're going to do next, and then mom kind of comes in with something um, to talk to her about and divert her attention away from the child. So, again, I think Jill's on to something here, and she feels like that 
that maybe her approach needs to be that she pulls back a little bit and that she sees what's happening so that she can calm this little boy down. I think that's huge. And I think that the thing that we need to think about as therapists is we need to always look at regulation. And so instead of thinking about um, maybe whether a kid is a seeker or an avoider or whatever, we just kind of look at that child's overall responsiveness. And our goal is we want to keep him regulated. We want to keep him right in the middle of his little boundaries there so that he's not too anything. (laughs) He's not too excited, too mad, too happy, too upset. You know, whatever your descriptors are there, he's not too of anything. We kind of keep him right there in that middle, in that what is that term, that zone of proximal development where where we're assisting him, where he can do more than he would be able to do on his own by sheer cooperativeness, you know, that we are there with him and helping him and, and assisting him and aiding him. We kind of want to keep it all there balanced. And sometimes that's hard to do with our little guys because they their little sensory systems tend to, like this little guy, he's easily overly aroused. And, again, that might be in a good way or a bad way. And we have to look at ways to help a kid stay regulated and stay with us and stay focused while at the same time, you know, we can't keep him under aroused either. There's got to be something going on. And I've seen therapists in this situation before, too, where, They'll take a kid like this and they'll think, well, if he's so completely over the top, I'm just going to back it so far down. And then guess what? You turn into an inanimate object. <laughs> you turn into the couch or the chair or the rug. And then there's, you know, there's so little going on that he has no reason to stay engaged. So you have to find that just right spot. Here's how I do it. And, again, I haven't seen this kid, so this may be the kind of situation that I would walk in. I might give Jill all this great advice, but if I walked in and saw all this for myself, I may feel completely differently. That certainly can happen. But what I would probably try to do is still have my face and my body, do you know what I mean by that, really on, but bring it way down with my voice. And while I might have gestured really big, you know, if we were playing a game, I might pull that back just a little bit. But, again, not enough to feel like gay or not enough to feel like, you know, this is nothing going on. This isn't worth me paying attention to. This isn't worth me staying with her. She's no fun at all today. What happened to her? I wouldn't do it that way. But if I felt like that he was overstimulated auditorily, I probably would try to bring it down and I'm still keeping my face excited and I'm still again doing the same things that we've done before I wouldn't probably change the activity so much as I would my presentation I hope that makes sense I hope you understand what I mean by that so that's what I would start with and it sounds like Jill already figured this out on her own and is already kind of doing that and I would just see the other things that I would do are the things that she's mentioned about his environment and I would talk to mom and say you know I think that we're seeing some of our hitting and biting and and even you know when he's excited he's doing that because it's he, there's so much stuff for him to process so let's think about how we can help him with that you know and certainly you know, you're going to be realistic she's never going to not have on the TV in the background probably but she could lower the volume from 30 to about 10 maybe <laughs> I don't know 
you know, she certainly, they have to have the, the siblings are going to be home, but we certainly can think about what can we do to kind of structure it so things move along without everybody kind of falling apart. And you'll just have to work your way through those conversations with parents. You know, I've done it the wrong way where I've completely offended moms earlier in my career. Thankfully, I got better at that with having those really hard discussions and saying, you know, this is this is why I think that we're seeing this is I really think he's, he's not regulated and we've got some over-responsiveness here. And while your other kids may be able to tune it out, you know, and he may be fine when I'm not here, but then when we're adding me, when we're adding therapy on top of all this, it just becomes too much for him. So let's figure out how we can pull some of this other stuff back so that I can still engage him and still be on and still have him participate with me but eliminate a lot of that background stuff so that it's not so overwhelming. And and I I do think that that's what's happening here because Jill says that she leaves the session exhausted and she leaves feeling overwhelmed. And certainly if an adult with a normal, you know, again, is there ever anybody that's really normal, but with a sensory system that's able to stay regulated most of the time, and, you know, she's comparing this to other visits. She says, you know, this after this visit, I'm just drained. And so she, those are the kinds of things that she needs to think about and that she needs to think, you know, what can I change? What can I eliminate? What can I, what can I reduce? What can I have moms help with? How can I change this environment? Can I go at a different time of day where things aren't as nuts as they might normally be? Um, is there a time when this little guy will be better? I, I'll tell, I'll give you an example. I have a little guy that I talk about him all the time on this show. He's five. You know, I saw him when he was in early intervention, and again, five is really old for me. He's actually about to turn six, and he's a guy that we're doing a lot of AAC with. Um, he's just got this, you know, horrifically complicated medical history. You know, really, really, really complex kid. But we've had to do a lot with his altering his therapy time. In the mornings, we we started out in the mornings, and then we went to the afternoons kind of because of uh, grandma's scheduling stuff. But in the afternoons, we started feeling like he was too tired, and so then grandma was going to give his meds at a different time. When she started giving the meds, then we kind of felt like he was a little overstimulated, so we had to kind of think about, you know, that kind of factor. Now we feel like, again, he may be, his ability to cope with me and the demands that we have with therapy, just because of all the things that have happened in, by the afternoon, you know, he's fatigued, he's hungry probably, um, you know, he's had all these things happen with him at school. We've kind of decided now we have to go back to the morning because we were getting better responses in the morning. You know, we didn't have as high a level of accuracy in the afternoon with all the, our goals that we're measuring. And so we decided, okay, let's, even though it's kind of a pain for Grandma, let's move him back to one of those morning slots. And guess what? Went right back to where they were. He's able to learn better from me that time of day. Sometimes we have it differently. We have a kid who needs to be a little bit tired <laughs> for them to be able to sit and participate and listen and learn, as we say in therapy. So that's something that you may get to play with, with uh, just your therapy times. And moms can help you with that. They can start to track it. They can start to help you see. And, guys, 
when they see that, that we get better reactions in therapy and we, we've modified some of these things with the environment and it made a difference, then they're more willing to do that with other parts of their life. So we have to really help them through that and model that. And again, not in a way that's threatening or condemning or in any way negative. We don't want moms to feel like we're being judgmental or we're preachy or whatever word you want to use. You're approaching it from, I want to help you get an optimal time for therapy and an optimal time so that we can get the very best results and then you're able to take this, know what works, know what doesn't work, and then go with it. Now, some therapists would say, well, you don't want to see them at the optimal time because you want to help mom through all this stuff and you want to see when it doesn't work. And I get that. And, yeah, I, I want to do that too. But for some kids, we've got to get it in We've got to see some progress. We've got to get some form of better <laughs> before we can tackle that that huge range of other and and all of that stuff. So you've got to get to the point where, again, you can see that something that you're doing is working before you would feel like you could tackle every single thing. Um, Jill also goes on to that she's working on really with him a lot of receptive language she said this is a little guy that is having some trouble identifying family members and body parts, and she's already told us he's over two. But that's a big red flag. We know that receptive language is a big, big issue, and I'm so glad she's working on that. She said they've, again, done a lot of the social stuff, a lot of the play stuff, and they've also been working on building his imitation skills. She said he doesn't gesture or sign very much. She is hearing that word, so that's great. So for her, I would say he sounds like a really, really hard it sounds like that she's figured out a ton of stuff with him. I would keep the play really simple, like she's done. I also would probably do a lot of the play that we do right after we move to um, toys and objects as we introduce just a little bit of an object. So, and, But that we're still mostly doing that... Um, social engagement piece even while we're using something else. So something like using a laundry basket or a diaper box where we put the kid in it and then we're kind of that as our, as our tool for row, row your boat or car or whatever. Um, you might try, again, swinging at a blanket or rolling in a blanket. I think we talked a lot about on the last show where we're, we're making our game include some of those sensory things that we that we know he needs. Um, on days when he's pretty overwhelmed, I might try isolating a little bit, you know, whatever we're doing. For some kids, that might mean that you get over in the corner. For some kids, it might mean that, again, instead of kind of having the TV on and, and everything going on in the background that you really talk to mom about, let's make the environment a little more quiet. Let's see if we can turn these lights down a little lower. Let's see if we can kind of bring this environment stuff down so that I can still stay up and on and, and we're... We're playing with really simple toys that he likes, that he can do, but that we've modified the environment so much so that he's not having to filter all that out to be able to participate with me. So those are a lot of the things that I would try. Um, we're out of time. I had I, I always plan way too much for these shows. You think after six years I would learn. But what I want to talk about next, is that next little rung of play. So, again, we've talked about the social games, and today we talked a little bit about those specific sensory things. We talked about that last time, too, with that next little little step with 
with using the social game, but where we're introducing some other kind of object. And then I want to talk about that next little way that we play with toys like balls and bubbles and balloons, these things that are still movement-based that we've introduced an object. But again, guys, we're, the, the toy is still not our real focus. Our still main focus is keeping that engagement going and keeping that interaction going, even though we've introduced an, a new object. And this is, I, I'm not giving a background to next week's show. When we start next week's show, I'm not going to say, go back and listen, and this is our recap. We're going to start right from the beginning so that I get to where I want to be. <laughs> And so, so that we finish this, this series. But I, I think it's important information. I can judge from the number of emails and comments that I've gotten that this is information that, that so many therapists are looking for and parents. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've heard mostly from therapists on this, therapists writing me saying, gosh, I have a kid like this, or that show meant so much to me. I'm so excited for that next part of the podcast. This is what I need. This is, this is where I need the most help. So I know that we are doing a good thing by spending so much time on this topic. So next week we're going to move from playing those social games that we talked about in show 227 to today we talked about environmental modifications. We mentioned a little bit of, we've talked about sensory stuff on every show, but next show we're going to start immediately with this is kind of how you move it to where the object becomes a little more important, but that we're still using interaction and engagement and their, a, a kid's social skills, that that's still our focus, even though we've introduced this other object. I hope that makes sense. And I do hope you're benefiting from these shows and learning new ideas, especially to help us with our most challenging, most difficult, but because they're really interesting and they make you stretch and grow and think and you're not on autopilot during those sessions, you're really, I hate to say that, and I don't want moms to get the impression, but, you know, you kind of have a routine and you get going, and every once in a while, you know, and you're great at it, and it's fun and successful, and everybody's moving along, but then you'll get a kid that just knocks you in the face, and that you think, man, I need some new ideas here. So I hope that that's what this series is doing for you and giving you some new things to try with, again, kids who may be a little bit out of our comfort zone. Okay, that's it for today. I hope you'll join me next week. Uh, I'll be back on Monday, hopefully forever, that that's going to go back to our regular time for the show. And again, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, laura at teachmetotalk.com. Thanks so much. Have a great week.